absolutely delighted to start today's program with a 15-time winner amongst the professional ranks. Five of those in the European Tour, also a winner on the PGA Tour. 27 times competing in major championships, five top tens, including a fourth-place finish at the 1996 Masters. I'm talking about CBS Golf's Frank Nabilo joining us. He was also 94, 96, 98 International President's Cup team member. He was a vice captain in the 09 and 11 teams. And, of course, you know his work from 15 years on Golf Channel as well. Frank, absolute delight to have you in the program. How are you, my friend? Not too bad, Matt. Happy New Year. Yourself. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I saw a quote the other day that I thought I would start by asking you, and it was a quote that said, remember the time when you wished for everything that you have. Was there a time when Frank Nabilo, Nabilo pictured his career going in the arc that it has? No, never. Um, I, I was always asked. I remember in a pro-am, I always thought that was the best business degree you ever got. You got a chance to meet CEOs, people that were very successful in business. And just by asking a few questions, you um, you, you got to learn, um, you know, basically what life's all about and, and, and the fast lane. And they would always, you know, after a while, people say, well, you know, what's plan B? You know, what are you going to do after golf? And in the end, the best answer that I ever came up with was that when I have that answer, I guess that'll be the time to, you know, step, step aside and do something else. But um, as I've sort of said, you know, time and time again, you know, I, I got taken out through rheumatoid arthritis. So it, it was my career just changed. Uh, and, I, and I was very, very fortunate. It's weird. I was watching the Rich Lerner podcast. Oh, sorry, listening to Rich Lerner's podcast on the on the 25 year anniversary of the Golf Channel. And when you just hear Joe Gibbs and other people talking about how the channel took its own art, you know, I was fortunate. I was lucky to be living in Orlando because that's where the Golf Channel obviously is based and and i was fortunate that they were you know they were developing so you know they would tolerate somebody that um, really had no interest to get into that side of the business uh, so so you know I, I fell in the right place at the right time so sometimes in, in life you need a little bit of luck and you also don't always need to know exactly where you're going but uh, so that's ask a question no yeah that's a fascinating observation because i know a lot of people that listen to these kind of interviews with people with successful careers are doing the same thing that you did at the pro-ams they're leaning in just a little bit and saying what was the path i think that's a fascinating piece of advice to say you don't always need to know the the ultimate destination of course the path for you was a path for for golf and uh, you know again you, you're you know you're still a young man you got plenty of years in the career of whatever you want to do with it but is it an interesting to think that a sport could have provided the career that you've had so far yeah, I'm, you know, I'm fascinated with golf on so many different levels because, you know, I, I love sports like everybody else does, and I know it sounds like a cliche when people say that, but um, even though I don't play as, as much or hit balls as, as what I would like to since I broke my left wrist playing tennis, um, it, it, you know, I just see it, it it's played in the only sport that's, that can be played extremely poorly, um, even just a trip to the range or, you know, top golf, you know, uh, golf shack, that type of thing, just hitting balls in with a beer in your hand to all of a sudden the highest level of professionalism. So, you know, we have a sport that, that, that just has this, this myriad of opportunity. Um, you know, and some people only play golf in a cart. Um, I, I think walking is still the best, the best option and the best exercise. So, you know, this game, it, it, and it's technical, it's confusing, you know, we have problems with the rules. 
you know, it's filled with hypocrisy, you know, like most sports. You know, it, it's it's an amazing sport because it just touches so many bases. So I guess it, that in itself, it allows so many different opportunities. Would would you use that same definition that you just laid out for us, Frank Navalo, as the reason why you love the game? Yes, yeah, I, I, I think that's, you know, you get tortured. There's not a single round of golf that I played, um, even as a professional, that, that I left the golf course thinking, okay, that's that's as good as I could play. And, and you know, I'm great. I've, I've touched the holy grail. I've, you know, we've all read the Ben Hogan's of the world have said the same thing. But, yeah, golf has that amazing ability. Even on your best day, you were left unsatisfied. It doesn't sound possible, but it is. A friend of mine just the other day he had a putt on the 18th green here at Lake Nona to break 80 for the first time. And he said he was fine until the guy he was playing with said, this is to break 80. And, of course, he didn't make it. We all know that. So I remember talking to Jack Nicklaus uh, you know, when he said that he would, uh, you know, he got nervous. You know, as a early, in my early 20s, first time I started playing in America, and, and the lockers are alphabetical, so my surname starting with the letter N was going to be close to Norman or Nicholas. And uh, he just sort of said, you know, what's up? And I'm like, I'm nervous. And he goes, isn't it great? So that same degree of, of nervous that Jack Nicholas would feel winning one of his 18 major championships or, you know, 62 wins would would be the same as that guy trying to break 80 for the first time. It's just that he's better conditioned to do it or Tiger Woods. So, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating game. Fascinating indeed. So, too, is the fact that you have a daughter, Bianca, <laughs> who has now become a bona fide star in news, television news. She's based out of London, CNN. Is her is her work in the United States, do they ever bring it over, or is it totally in the international side? Well, she actually did. Um, they tried her as a host in Atlanta, and they, and they loved her. They wanted her to stay. But uh, she's a little stubborn, like I am. And and uh, But, you know, she has the, the skills. She's the youngest in Britain to get a, a fellowship in speech and communication. She, she has tools in this industry that, that I'll never have. I'm very proud of of uh you know what she's become straight a student went to the right schools warwick and then finished did her masters at london school of economics and she even trained with the defense department she worked in parliament and um you talk about a little bit of luck and and she wanted to go in a different way politics to be honest to actually stand and she was asked to to stand for one of the parties um as a, a as a as a young um uh, member of parliament but uh and then she took another job at the same time which was to intern and she worked as a booker for richard quest at cnn and then lo and behold she was asked to be put on the air because someone uh they needed someone that knew a little bit about what was going on i.e brexit and she's the brexit expert basically because of all the context she knows the time that she spent in parliament the defense department and, and i remember telling her at that particular time i said you got a little bit of luck what do you want to do with it and I'm very, very proud of what she's turned that into. And, and yeah, she's she just gets better and better and better. Hey, that's fascinating to me because I was going to ask you what advice you gave your daughter in that in that realm of, of talking to an electronic a, a robot that's a, that's a human being, a camera. And your advice to her was, you got a little bit of luck. What are you going to do with it? Which I actually think is a fascinating piece of advice in and of itself. Well, the other bit, yeah, the other bit too. And, and uh, hey, I... You know, you know the industry like I do, Matt. I, I think you've also got to be better than they expect you to be. And and that sort of sounds a, a bit obvious, but you know in the industry when you, know, when you go from job to job or they put you in a different role, whether it's like a studio show or even calling golf, that they expect people to be, you know, certain area. You've got to be like that good. And you're not meant to know about what the producer does or a director does or whatever. 
So I said, if you can just be one step ahead of where they expect you to be, then, then you know, you're not going to be asked the same questions that every, everybody else does. And I said, expect this or expect that. So the only sort of fatherly advice to me was understanding the sort of cobweb that is, you know, this industry of TV. And, um, and also, to be honest, you know, I remember Jim Kelly, the first ever tournament that I did on the Champions Tour in Walla Walla. Um, my first year at the Golf Channel, he said, you know, get to know your cameraman. And I'm like, well, well, what do you mean? And well, number one, they're living, breathing human beings and they become some of your best friends. But they also know mm-hmm. when you're having a good day and a bad day and they can do another take. So there's little parts of the industry that you, know, you, you try and you know, pay it forward, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, I, so when I said goodbye to Golf Channel um, at the end of last year, you know, hopefully not all the, all the events, but um, you know, I, I remember just, seen the crew we had a party that night and the people that that the viewer never gets to see and that's so important because they make air every single day and they make it work absolutely i i always tell people coming in to do the stuff that you did the stuff that we do now it's a funny thing because everyone assumes that there's all kinds of safety nets everyone assumes that there's a a maturation process uh something to help you get ready there's none Essentially, you get thrown into the the deep end of the pool, and they go, "Well, let's see if he if he can swim. You know, just tie tie a weight to his ankle. Let's see if he can if he can get himself out of this." And the other thing that I always tell, particularly players when they come in for the first time, is that I say, "You know, you're going to be asked a question, and you're going to answer the question like you've done a gazillion times before with a microphone in your face. No one's looking for you just to answer that question." If you really want to succeed at this job, you have to have an opinion. You have to take it beyond what you're being asked. You have to make it somehow your own and give the audience a perspective that is completely unique in yours. If you can't do that, then you're in the wrong business. And, Frank, that was something, I don't know whether it was innate to you or whether you developed it over the over time, but you always did that. You, you, you give people something that it causes them to go, hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. I think the the hard thing is, like, it, it changes, though, on the type of show that you do. I remember you know, Live Golf, for example, uh, my first producer, Keith Hirschland, you know, he said you have to be consistent, and it shouldn't be personal. I, if you're going to call a guy out, you know, for something he did on a golf course today, then you've got to call Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods or, you know, whoever the player might be somewhere else. In other words, you can't you can't just be selective on, on who you want to use as your poster child. And then, obviously, that's live golf. And then studio shows, you do get a chance, obviously, to be a little bit more opinionated. But you can't just mimic the what, what was said um, by the person you know, that precedes you. Um, and, and that's where sometimes TV can be a little selfish. You know, it's a bit like going to the dinner table. You know, there's a big hunk of meat in the middle. If somebody eats all that hunk of meat, well, then you've you got to look for something else to eat or something else to say. So you do have to think a little bit on the fly. It's not scripted as people think. But... Yeah, you know, I think coming from New Zealand um, and then uh, and then living in, in London for you know, nearly a dozen years and coming over there, coming over here, gives you a slightly different perspective of what you're mm. going to get from most people coming in. And, and fortunately you know, for me, to the places where the place where I really learned to, to do my announcing and broadcasting, studio or live golf, was Golf Channel, which has also been worldwide. So people wanted a, in some respects, too a, a as some would say, a more global perspective, which sometimes wasn't being given. Have you, I'm just curious, have you been with Bianca somewhere where instead of people for once recognizing you, they're starting to recognize her instead? 
Yeah, and it's great in, in London. Yeah, um, she's a very attractive girl as well, so people are going to notice her for a number of reasons. But yeah, yeah, and um, it's in a different demographic. You know, I'm, I'm older now. You know, she's young. You know, she's not thirty yet, so it's different. And it's and it's uh, you know, I, to be honest, I enjoy. I'm proud to her, but you know, it's it's got its pitfalls. You know, she's going through that. I hate social media, uh, but her her jobs now and going forward are determined also by social media base. Um, so, you know, companies want you to increase that factor. So therefore, when you're going in, you have a certain cash. You know, I, I think social media is very, very important. Um, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it, it's sometimes the lowest common denominator too. You know, like if you go into a restaurant and have a bad meal, everybody complains, right? But how many times do we leave a restaurant and say, hey, the meal was great? We don't. So we, we, we are innate complainers, and social media often is a platform for complaints. Um, it's viable, don't get me wrong, but, but you know, a lot of the times we're not saying, hey, that was great, or I really enjoyed that person on, on the air, or what they said. We're just going to you know, moan and complain, because that's what we do easily, myself included. Fascinating. You know, it's interesting, because I, if to that point, when you do a show, I have found that when social media stands up and, and gives you a standing ovation, it's silence. And I mean that I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to be you know flippant with that. I'm dead serious that if you get no comment whatsoever, people liked what you did. And, yeah, and then there's always the, go ahead, yeah, yeah. And, and but that's actually important too because you know that's the problem. If if we follow the naysayers or the people that complain, so you know I, I was telling my daughter the ninety ten percent rule, right? In other words, if 90% of people enjoy what you're doing, you know, if that's 100 people, that's 90 people. If it's 1,000, obviously it keeps multiplying up. If it gets to a million people, that means 100,000 people don't like you. And if they're the only ones that are voicing their opinion and you listen to that, then you are forgetting the 900,000 or 90, just 90%, 80%, yeah. whatever that percentage you want it to be, that actually really listen and enjoying the, the, the effort that you're putting in to try and get it right. So, so like I said, that, that's where it's important. And they are part of, um, so, you know, what should be social media, but they're not, they're not spending the time because they're thinking, hey, that's great. I enjoyed that show or I enjoyed um, the golf. And they just go on about their regular life the way we would and should. Did, did you did you ever care, though? I mean, a couple of times I've seen you go back at people on Twitter or what have you when they say something ridiculous. But did it ever really impact you or later on you scratch your head and was like, wow, that person really hates me? Yeah, yeah, no, I did. I, I, it, it, I probably cared about it too much. And that's why. For me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up for an argument or should I say a discussion. You know, if somebody, you know, they have a, a legitimate cause or they think or, or you know, the worst thing is when, when they, you know, as we do, often we dissect what someone says. We take little bits out. We just edit it. So I said, you know, if, if you're going to take it out of context, that's great. But I said, at least if you're going to quote me, quote, quote me exactly the way what I said, the whole paragraph. And then it makes mm -hmm. then it's got context. So, yeah, and sometimes you would fight. And then, then I would remind myself exactly what I was saying. In other words, you know, you're appealing to the one person who's entitled to not like you. It's perfectly entitled. But you're spending more time with that person. You know, it's like that old saying. You know, we, we spend so much time with people to try and make us like us that we actually forget to spend the time with the people we really should. It's a good point, too, the, the point of positive. It, there can be negative feedback that has positive ramifications. I remember I was doing, uh, I forget what broadcast, I, I, the radio in Europe that, that I do, and I, I think it was the Solheim Cup this year. And John Huggin, you know, because John, John is a, a friend of all of ours, but he's quick to point out, and he's indiscriminate with, with that, as, as you said, as Keith gave you 
advice, be consistent. And he said, you know, I love Maddie, but whole location is so USGA mandated <laughs> USA type language. He was getting on me for the terminology. And I yeah. thought to myself, you know, that's fair enough. It's a, it's an international broadcast. I don't have to always use the same term, which I wasn't doing deliberately in fairness. I was doing it out of nerves uh, because that was the, the terminology that popped into my brain. But after that, I was a little more cognizant of it, and I mixed it up a little bit for for, for the audience. And so there was a at least an opportunity for a positive there. Uh, to to what you're doing now, Frank, the, the CBS, et cetera, I think all of us, myself included, assume that we're talking about the coverage of the PGA Tour, live coverage of the PGA Tour on CBS. But CBS has multiple platforms just like everybody else does now. Is there or will there be the opportunity for us to see Frank Nabilo in kind of a, anything close to a studio setting again where you get asked questions and you're responding to a variety of different topics? Um, I honestly don't know, you know, and I hope so. Um, you know, because the, the, you know, studio shows are that that's where the viewer got to to see me, basically. Yeah. Is that without trying to sound egotistical about it, you know, that's where they they either you know like what you have to say or or don't, and um, and and you also you draw a link. You know, if you you, you are invited into that person's living room, so you know you're trying to look through that lens into that one person sitting in their living room in front of the camera sorry, in front of their TV. And and you are endeavoring to create that link. You know, for me though, you know, I got into this industry to be honest, to do to do live golf. Um, I just happened to luck into a show that started that very year, you know, two thousand and four, live from started that very year. You know, so you, you want to talk about two strokes a lot. So I remember talking to, you know, Bob Greenway when he said, Would I do it? And and I remember the executive producer at that time was a guy called Tony Tortorici. He goes, Well I don't think you got the energy for the job. And then lo and behold, you know, 16 years later, I was working more platforms. And that was the biggest thing for me is that from a, from a family point of view, you know, I wanted to see my daughter and her career, spend time with my wife. My parents live in New Zealand. My, my, my wife's parents live in Asia. You know, it's, it's hard. It was, it was nearly impossible to try and tick all the boxes. So I, I was trying to reduce the number of weeks. And then, you know, things went all over the place. And then, bang, you know, you land a 20-week a, a spot with CBS or live golf. So it was an effort to try and get to where I, I started off. But to answer your question, yeah, no, you know, this talk that you know, everybody's changing really the way in which they're going to do things purely because of the TV contracts. You know, I don't think the viewer realizes that, you know, this big 2021 um, PJ Tour television negotiation deal, you know, how big an impact that's going to have on the shows that they're going to see. Um, but it's, it's huge in our industry. Um, it's just sort of, it's on a different level downs for the for the average person at home. You know, I hope that doesn't, I hope that aids their viewing experience, doesn't hurt it. But to answer your question, yeah, no, no, I hope I, hope I still get seen. I don't know. Well, if, Frank, if, and again, I, I'm not, I don't mean to cast this in, in, interview in such a way as though we're talking to someone who's 75 years old looking back on their life. But with the experience that you've had as a player, and the fact that your playing days literally bridged generations from from the blocker next to Jack Nicholas to to playing and chronicling the career of of Tiger Woods it literally was that kind of a bridge if you could through some magic time machine would you change the era in which you competed oh yeah 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 because purely money i i think you know i'm going to bring up a word i used early on in the interview which is hypocrisy 
Yeah, I mean, they play for so much money now. There's huge envy from, from my generation, let alone previous generations. That's the truth of it. It's weird. I was looking, you know, there's a lot of flack about the Middle East. Ken Schofield, a good friend of mine, um, you know, he, he was instrumental in, in touching the Middle East. And it's viewed differently in Europe as opposed to in, in America, especially in today's political times. But for them, it was a chance to get close to the sum of the dollars that you see on the, on the PGA Tour, because the PGA Tour has been incredibly successful. So they ventured into areas they knew, hey, that, you know, you know it's, a, it's a little dicey and all that, but they're used to that. They have a Russian Open. Um, you know, the European tour touches so many different, it used to touch, you know, it did touch South Africa in the apartheid years. So that, you know, for them, that's just business as usual. So, you know, that was, it's, it is about, you know, if you're going to be a professional, you are playing the game that you love, but you're going to be reimbursed for it, paid for it handsomely. So, yeah, there would be no doubt. There, there wouldn't be a single player that wouldn't play today. But in saying that, you've got to be honest too, they can really play, Matt. I mean, you know, I'm amazed, and you know, you've you've heard what I've talked about. You know, we've heard about equipment and how much the ball goes further. But you know, and when I say the guys go to the gym, and and you, they work harder now, they really do. I know you see them on social media at the beach, you know, shirts off and all that. But you know, the attention when they go to the gym, and people think they're just trying to be muscle men or whatever, but they're trying to eke out one percent because if mm-hmm. in the end, equipment has taken away some of the advantages that a Jack Nicklaus had or whatever. So these guys are working so hard to get that extra one percent difference, the Kepkas of the world, and that. And that's what Tiger is, what Tiger Woods did, and I think it's an amazing era. So to to see the way in which the game has gone from Nicholas to Woods to now, um, obviously I haven't competed in this era, but but I'm a big fan of the game, and I love the way they play. I mean, they they are fearless, absolutely fearless. You you, you know, there's already been six playoffs this season. Um, you know, these guys, you know, a, a few first time winners that were knocking in birdie putts on the 18th hole to make a playoff and then win. So, you know, golf is well served now. It's just different from John, John Hagen, who I'm a, I'm a big fan of, you know, that, but, mm-hmm. um, but, and I, I, I had this, I was out for dinner with John at the president's cup in Melbourne with a good friend of mine, Mike Clayton. And we we're talking about that. It's, it's, it certainly hasn't passed us by because we're, we're very much a part of it, but it's different. And the way in which they play, it's not these players' fault. They're, they're trying to take every advantage, and they're literally you know, pedal to the floor. Yeah, that that's what you just alluded to there is a, is a divide and a discussion that, that John and I have over dinner as well, and that he's – I, I get – and, and in fairness too, Frank, you know that my background was in equipment manufacturing, so yeah, I, I understand yeah. that equipment – has narrowed the gap between the best, the best of the best. But even the other day, we had a we had a debate on on Morning Drive with Jaime and Gary and myself. Will there ever be another dominant player? I'm saying you've got a player in Brooks Kepka that right now is dominating in majors, first in, in two seconds and a fourth in the in the year that just passed as a loan. So I, I think the discussion about equipment and whatever they end up doing at that level, and it should only be at the at the top level, and even that I'm, I question, but whatever they do, I think it takes away from the players in what they are doing as though I remember when I was young type of wave of the hand. I, I think that they're doing remarkable things regardless. Well, they are. You know, it's the game, obviously, you know, analytics, analytics are involved now, but we are going through a threshold uh, generation. If you, if you look at the 80s when it was Norman, Price, Faldo, 
Um, Curtis Strange, obviously the best player in the 80s coming through. You had the equivalent, and the, the conversation was the same. Are we ever going to see a really dominant player? And, it's, and, and you could argue it should have been Greg Norman, but the two majors uh, and the players, how that sort of related to the other players. He was outscored in some of the big events by, by other players in his generation. So mm-hmm. even though he had more, more weeks at world number one, it was, well, you know, it could have been, should have been. But then again, too, remember, he had the Sunday slam, led all the majors going into, into, into Sunday. So then there was the thought that maybe perhaps somebody could you know, very well win or hold all four majors. No, that's not possible. And then lo and behold, we, we enter this amazing uh, run that was the equivalent of, of, Jack, of, sorry, of Arnold Palmer in the 60s with TV and Arnold Palmer coming along the same line. You have the 24-7 channel, i.e. Golf Channel, and the advent of Tiger Woods. So you had this perfect storm. Once again, just a stroke of luck, I guess. Everything starts at the same time. And also, they'd got into the metal driver, and things had nearly established themselves again, reset, and, and he was just ready. He was ready for a time, and we went into the solid ball and all that. But now everybody's sort of caught up again, and, and there will be another spurt because people are still trying to figure out what's the best way to play this game. Is it just a driver off the tee? You know, there's a decade system. Um, you know, which which helps you know where you, where you should be really strategy and, and where you should aim. It's, it's very very clever, and um, and so people are trying to pick apart at that. There will be another dominant player. Don't get me wrong. It's just that you know you, you the, the time has to be right. You know, every seventh wave is the biggest one, right? Mm, no doubt about that. Uh, you you of course will be in the tower in April at the Masters. I know you have a lot of work to do uh, throughout the course of the year that lies before us, but. How special is it for you to not only have played at the Masters, to have performed very well at the Masters, and now still to be a piece of our enjoyment of the same? It's it's a dream come true. Um, it's like the old course as well. You know, the the two courses that are, and you can debate. You know, one is too perfect, <laughs> and one is too rugged. I guess, but when you've competed in them, and you realize how important they are in the game, I, I remember. They used to have an event called the Dunhill Cup, a team event, not the one it is now that's like an AT&T format. And I remember going there as a 22 or 23-year-old. I played in more Dunhill Cups for New Zealand, and that actually paid for my first house. But it was a trip, you know, it was a chance to go and compete on a golf course that I knew that all these players had played it, played on. And um, and then, obviously, compete in open championships on that. And then flip across the other side of Atlantic, and you've got this, you know, the Bobby Jones um, feeling and all that, and, and you know, hallowed ground and, and perfect. You just uh, quintessential America. You, you can't have it any more idyllic. And even the way in which, obviously, we don't say fans, we say patrons, but the way they um, really log on to their badge, you know, like they keep it. It's the one badge that, you know, you go to Augusta and you keep it. You say, that, I went to Augusta at such and such a year. And of course, you know, I've had a chance to do Amy and Corner and just through there. I mean, it's 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 amazing. And I made a mistake. The Jordan Spieth year, uh, the, when he whacked it in the, in the water and made seven, I never thought that the Masters would be um, sort of decided in that little period. I thought it was too close to the end, and I was relatively new. Fortunately, Faldo and Baker Finch, I mean, we got into a conversation. So where I say I made a mistake, I just, you know, I was I was doing live from in the morning and was out to my position, do that, and then get ready to, to run to another show. But then, lo and behold, I'm watching this event unfold. I mean, Spieth was going to win another Masters. It was going to be quite incredible. And then, of course, last year, 
you know, with Kepka and, and Frankie Molinari and, of course, Tiger Woods winning his 15th major championship. It was amazing. So it's just an era that's special. I mean, you know, magic, it's like a little gland down there. Uh, and, and magical things happen. It's, 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 it's really neat. Before we let uh, Frank Nabilo go uh, today, Frank, what's, for you, what's the next mountain to climb? <laughs> uh, mountain to climb. Um, I, I don't know. You, you know. Matt, you're always trying to get it right. It's broadcasting's the, the nearest thing to playing golf. Uh, as I just said before, you know, you never got it right when you when you had a round of golf, and I don't think you ever get it right when you when you broadcast it. And if you did, then it's time to go. So for me, I'm I'm still trying to get through a show where I thought I thought okay, I did it right, uh, I didn't make a mistake. And I don't, I don't think that day is going to happen, but um, that's the thing. You know, you, you, it makes you work harder. You try and do homework. You know, you, you, at the end of every show, you're like, damn it, I should have gone to the range and I should have asked him. I just found out he put a new putter in the bag. And you're like, <laughs> I short set the viewer. And, and, you know, there's 144 guys or 156 guys in the field. And there's never enough time to do all that homework because somebody's going to be on your screen and the viewer needs to know why he's playing well that week. And sometimes, rather than just dipping into shot length, you should have shown up. I'd just gone to the range and waited five more minutes and found out you just put a brand new driver in the back. Maybe that's a reason. So, um, if that's a mountain, I'm going to try and climb it. I, I, you have to. You just remind me of something. I have to ask you because it's a it's a personal thing for me. It's an anxiety. I never feel prepared to go on the air ever. I never feel like I've done enough research that I've done. I just. You know, I'm not talking about the performance, I suppose, that you just defined it as. But going in, did you ever feel like you had enough time to get ready as much as you wanted to? No. And, and to be honest, the guy that helped me with that, um, Brent Packer, who's a producer uh, with the Golf Channel, um, I got yep. to meet his dad, Billy Packer, a basketball commentator. And I, I know, you know, he's, he can be a grizzled old man like I can be. So, but I did want to pick his brain. And it was that very, very question. So where he's, he lives at a golf course. So anyway, I said, Mr. Packer, I said, you know, can I just ask you a broadcasting question? Broadcasting question, and he goes, Yeah, sure. And I, and his sort of eyes rolled down like, Here we go again. But um, but I said, same question. I said, Did you ever feel prepared? And he goes, No. I said, Well, what did you do? And he says, Well, I, you know, I did all my homework. I like what team should beat, you know, which team and and by how and what and why they would do it. You know, it's always the how, what, and where. And um, I'm like, okay, well, this is not really what I thought I was going to get for an answer. And then he gives, a, then I just push him aside and I follow the ball. And I'm like, that I'll follow the ball. I, I think that's it. And I think sometimes we do get caught up in our notes, and we think we've figured it out. And that's the problem. When we do that, then I, then I think we get the job wrong because you know golf is a living, breathing game. Any player can hit any shot at any particular time. So if we just follow our notes and we think we are prepared, then I think we get it wrong, and to use a Billy Packerism. You've got to follow the ball in, in, in our industry and see where it takes us, I, I really think. And that's anyone that asks me, you know, uh, uh, somebody that, that's trying to get into it for the first time, I say, watch the ball. It's like, like going, it's like playing golf. Watch the ball. And they go, what do you mean? I said, well, that's what's being hit. That's the whole nature of this game. And I said, you've got to keep your eyes open on that. So, no, I, w I never felt prepared. Never will. Well, Frank, I, I tell you, I have immense respect for you, as you know. Um, I, I'm very proud that you're a friend. I'm so proud of the career that you have already authored and the pathway that you're on now. And that thankful there, too, that we as golf fans will 
be able to continue to hear you and have you be a voice that contributes to our our thoughts and emotions surrounding the game of golf. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. So much time on this morning to, to give us your ideas and thoughts and of what was and hopes of what will be. Thank you. No, Matty. Hey, you've always put the game and the viewer first. That's good in my book. I appreciate it, man. Have a great year.